0: Welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast edition for Monday, November 2nd, a brand new month underway, and we're barreling down towards the end of the year. We hope everything is good with you and yours, and we hope you're going to have a terrific week. We've got some terrific topics and conversations to bring to you on this episode. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host and executive producer here at New Mexico PBS. As always, we've got a little bit of content from the show this week as well as uh, extra content. And while we're talking about that, we should mention you can always watch New Mexico and focus on New Mexico PBS channel 5.1, Fridays at 7 p.m., Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. But you can also find us on the uh, PBS app and watch whenever it's convenient for you. So we encourage you to find us, incorporate us in wherever you can, whatever makes sense for you. All right, kicking things off this week, uh, there's a story that's been out there for a while, a potential merger with the Public Service Company of New Mexico and Avangrid, which is a U.S. subsidiary of an of a international company. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about what this would mean. It comes with promises of a renewable future, moving to renewable energy, and the hope for lower rates for utility customers. But uh, not a lot beyond that is known, and so we wanted to try to get some answers. Well, Avangrid has been up and operating in Maine for nearly a decade now, and so we wanted to find out what the experience has been like there. And spoiler alert, it's been a little bit mixed, and so we wanted to Jump into all of that, and we were lucky to reach out to Caitlin Caitlin Andrews with the Bangor Daily News. And our environment reporter, Laura Paskus, caught up to her on Zoom to get the lowdown on what the experience has been like there in Maine.
1: I'm Laura Paskus. New Mexicans are facing some potentially big changes when it comes to our electrical utility. That's because there's a merger being worked out between PNM Resources and Avangrid, the US subsidiary of a Spanish power company. How that will play out and what the consequences might be remain to be seen. But I checked in recently with Caitlin Andrews, a reporter for the Bangor Daily News. Avangrid has been in Maine for more than a decade, and the company has not been without controversy. So, here in New Mexico, there's a planned multi billion dollar merger between PM Resources and Avangrid. PM has operated as a monopoly, the state's electric utility, for decades, and Avangrid is the US based subsidiary of a Spanish power company. Now, this is all still playing out here in New Mexico. But in Maine in 2008, Avangrid bought Central Maine Power. When the company was coming to Maine, what are some of the things that they promised? And Caitlin, what have people seen happen over
2: the past um, 14 years? Um, Well, I guess I should say to start the way that it actually came about was that um, Iberdrola bought uh, Energy East, which Central Maine Power was a um, subsidy of in 2008, and then in 2015, Iberdrola bought this other company called UIL Holdings. They merged them together in their network division, which created Avangrid. So Avangrid was birthed in 2015, and CMP just ended up being something underneath that. And I believe the idea was that, you know, merging them together would create more um, reliability, you know, create more dependable customer services, and it would, create a stronger utility altogether. And some of the challenges that have come up since then, um, you know, you can make an argument, well, at least like the state found very recently could have sprung from the Avangrid merger. They released an audit that has been three years in the making with um, Liberty Consulting Group this year that found that Avangrid itself is not a bad company, but it has really struggled since the merger to be able to um, provide customer service largely because it is has been cutting or limiting some of its resources to meet its earning expectations um, the challenge that created that happened from that was that it created staffing fluctuations um, with staff sometimes being cut and then sometimes being restored which created an uneven expectation of customer service reliability that investigation really sprang out of a um, some scandal that came out in October 2017 when there was a Windstorm where some people lost power for at least a week, and then they received some high bills afterwards, um, which later led to the uh, Public Utilities Commission in Maine finding that uh, CMP needed to compensate its customers for billing them when they experienced high outages.
1: Interesting. So recently, Representative Seth Barry, a Maine lawmaker, he wrote an op-ed that was published pretty widely here in New Mexico, warning the state against the merger. Is the company this unpopular in Maine?
2: Well, certainly, I think any conversation about Avangrid is really a reflection of CMP. You know, that's the local utility. That's the one people are more familiar with. Um, you really see Avangrid coming up in the conversation around the New England Clean Energy Connect, which is a hydropower corridor that is going to bring um, hydropower electricity down through Maine into Massachusetts and also into the regional grid. But, you know, it's happening to fulfill um, a bid Massachusetts put out to fulfill its uh, renewable energy goals. So when people are talking about Almond Grid, they're usually talking about it through the perspective of the corridor, about how this company doesn't care about its share about the main customers because there's such a small percentage of their earnings overall. There's no guarantee that they're going to have your best interest in mind when it comes to this.
1: So, one of the things that Representative Barry wrote about in his sort of warning to New Mexicans, um, he mentioned that there's a bill that the Maine legislature has passed to revoke Avangrid's monopoly and replace central Maine power with a nonprofit consumer owned utility. Um, he also wrote that the bill is supported by 75% of Mainers and that if it became law, it would save ratepayers $9 billion in the first 30 years and accelerate the state's transition to renewable energy. Based on your reporting, is this this accurate information? Is this an accurate assessment?
2: Um, Well, I can't quite speak to how, um, I guess widespread favorability is for the concept of consumer-owned utility. I would actually say that I don't know that a lot of people know what it would do, Um, but I do know that there was a study that came out that if a consumer owned utility happened, which in Maine, the concept here is that it would create a nonprofit that would basically then um, float a bond in order to buy out CMP and Versant Power, which are the two biggest utilities in the state. Um, you know, there's a lot of questions about whether they would be able to sell and there's actually a competing referendum trying to stop that. Um, but there was a study that came out that said initially Um, rates would increase for the first few years, but then eventually that uh, customers would see um, possible rate decreases over time. Here in
1: New Mexico, PNM Resources is like a political powerhouse. Um, You know, they have a great deal of influence in the legislature and over state government. I'm curious in terms of political influence, kind of um, what the situation is with CMP and Avangrid in Maine.
2: Well, certainly, uh, CMP and Avagrid have not been shy about flexing some political money around this referendum. Um, the referendum spending altogether is uh, between this one and the first one that was actually struck down for uh, constitutional purposes is over 62 million. And within this quarter alone, uh, Amigrid spent 8.7 million t- uh, giving to clean energy matters. Um, a lot of that has been spending on, you know, like ads and Mailers, and you know, you can make an argument about how useful those can be in a political season, but it's certainly a way ways that um, people like to flex their political forces. Um, they have very powerful influence in Augusta. They have some of the most high-paid lobbying firms um, that worked to defeat the consumer-owned utility bill. Um, I cannot speak specifically to some of the other bills that they reference on, but that one they were definitely very vocal, very present. In.
1: I'm curious. What questions do you think that people should be asking Avengrid right now to hold the company accountable if the merger goes through
2: and, and into the future? So one of the things that really stood out to me in this audit, the Liberty Consulting Group, was um, when they really just kind of explained how big Avengrid is. Um, you know, it said that it's force, which I assume means it's workforce exceeds thirty-five thousand. Zen, you know, compared to CMP, which has just over 900 people, um, made a note of saying that Maine comprises about 20 par- 20% of U.S. utility operations, but just 2% or so of World War April utility customers. So if I'm in New Mexico, I would want to ask Avangrid, how are you going to guarantee that you understand our specific energy needs? You know, what are your utility needs? You know, who are you going to work with to, you know, if... There's unsatisfactory customer. Like, what are you going to do to try to make that better? How well is your understanding of what New Mexico customers need?
1: Well, Caitlin Andrews, I've really appreciated reading your coverage um, of utilities in Maine. And I really appreciate you coming on New Mexico and Focus today. Thanks.
2: Thank you so much.
0: We'll have much more on the Avangrid merger with PNM. And that potential merger, I should say, in coming weeks, we're trying to gather more voices to come and talk about whether or not this is going to be a good thing for New Mexico, what we need to do going in to make sure that it is a good thing if it does, in fact, go through. So be on the lookout for that. Sticking on the environmental front, we did another Facebook Live this week, uh, or last week, I should say, with John Wakanda. He's of Isleta Pueblo and he recently came out of retirement to take on a new role as the Indigenous Partnerships Program Director for the Nature Conservancy. So uh, Laura Paskus caught up to him to find out why he wanted to take on this opportunity in retirement, what his goals and hopes and dreams are for this new position, and uh, just catch up with him on what this all means. So wanted to bring that to you as well, but if you haven't already, follow us on Facebook so you can see these Facebook Lives, which we do uh, fairly regularly with Laura Paskus and have some great ones in the works, including one tomorrow at 11.30 if you have a chance to tune in. Great news for our outdoor spaces, we're breaking records left and right with campground reservations. And so, is that all COVID-related? How do we keep that momentum going and also not get so crowded that we can't uh, just hop in the car and head out to one of our great camping sites. So that's tomorrow at 1130. But here now, environment reporter Laura Paskus with John Wakanda.
1: Wakanda, thank you so much for joining me today. We're talking about your new position at the Nature Conservancy. You're the Indigenous Partnerships Program Director. Thanks for joining me.
3: Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
1: So I wanted to start with, I know that you came out of retirement to take this position. What were you, what, what have you spent your career doing?
3: Um, I've had a long, enjoyable, um, very rewarding career, all in the federal service up to now. Um, I worked with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, where I was uh, trained as a forester, and I um, Oversaw and assisted in the management of tribal trust lands here in the Southwest, um, New Mexico tribes and the two Ute tribes in southern Colorado. Worked for a number of years as the um, regional forester for the BIA, and then I became a line officer superintendent for a bureau agency at Southern Ute Colorado with the Southern Ute Tribe. And um, then I began to want to get back into forestry and then applied for a position with the US Forest Service, was hired as the Regional Forester's Chief of Staff, and then later assumed the position, which I retired in last year after working for about five years as the Regional Restoration Partnership Coordinator for the Forest Service. Um, And then uh, retired. Uh, had a great federal career, and then um, began to start conversing with the Nature Conservancy here in New Mexico about an indigenous partnership program that they were wanting to develop. And that, to me, was the um, most um, enjoyable um, part of my career was partnerships and partnerships with tribes. Certainly uh, focusing in on improving the resources, um, the environment, and um, our abilities to address concerns and challenges in managing our natural resources on tribal lands. So um, I thought this position would be uh, a great opportunity to focus in on that um, and devote my attention to helping tribes and addressing um, some big challenges that we have. So um, that encouraged me and enticed me to come out of retirement.
1: (laughs) And you're from the Pueblo of Isleta, is that right?
3: That's correct. Pueblo of Isleta and also Laguna Pueblo.
1: Okay, so we have 23 tribes here in the federally recognized tribes in New Mexico. and It sounds like that means there's a lot of opportunities for partnerships. So what kinds of projects or Plans are you envisioning in the coming years?
3: I believe that um, as people um, living in our communities, tribal communities, indigenous communities, we all have a responsibility and a desire to improve um, these the um, natural resources and be able to ensure sustainability for future generations um, within our communities and the environment in which we live. We, on the nature conservancy side, also share that same goal and objective. It's conserving and addressing challenges that threaten our um, sustainable lifestyle and sustainable environment. So it's those types of projects that I think uh, I really want to focus uh, attention towards and be able to develop and encourage and sustain existing partnerships um, with organizations, with federal, state agencies whose responsibility it is to help address these issues and concerns and provide resources towards the improvement um, of our um, Mother Earth. It needs help in protection, it needs help in um, caring for it. And um, we hope to all work and create relationships, partnerships um, that allow us to do this in a respected, um, considerate manner and approach. And so that's what I hope to develop and strengthen and offer the Nature Conservancy as a trusted and respected partner to our tribal communities.
1: So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, I feel like um, tribes in New Mexico have all of this knowledge about the landscapes that they've lived on for hundreds, thousands of years. Um, How how does bringing that knowledge into partnerships help everyone? And also how do these sorts of partnerships help the tribes themselves and whatever issues they might be dealing with?
3: That's a great question. Yes, um, you know, the the people here, Pueblo people, Apache people, Diné, Navajo people who we are um, part of the state have been here for centuries. And yes, we do have traditional cultural knowledge. Um, we've sustained our communities and our people for many, many centuries and have lived here, um, have experienced many challenges and um, there is plenty and and, um, many teachings and lessons and um, ways of doing things that we all share and we hope to pass that tradition and teaching into our future generations, but also share it with the larger um, society in, in hopes of gaining respect, gaining recognition, and gaining attention to, I guess you could say common sense ways of living, common sense ways of um, sustainability. Um, We we need to talk, we need to communicate, we need to share information that helps us all. Um, we, We hope to have relationships developed where that communication is Encouraged, promoted, respected, and also desired. Um, so I hope that through our exchanges, through our abilities to um, provide resources to learn, to implement, and to adapt um, to our changing environments, um, we have organizations and and. Um, agencies who are responsible for delivering services to all of us as, as citizens, to all of us as people living in our shared space. We need to learn how to share and live with it together and address challenges together. Um, so I think it's it's a, an important responsibility to develop that communication, develop that respect, and develop a, a continued um, joint relationship that is sustainable. Um, We can't fight each other over limited resources. We're we're going to um, not gain um, progress on on addressing um, challenges, climate change, climate adaptation, drought, um, catastrophic wildfires, threats, um, floods, Those are all part of nature. We have to live with nature and we have to learn from each other how to do that.
1: Are there, so you mentioned some of these big issues, are there particular um, challenges or places or landscapes that that are like are demanding your immediate attention or interest?
3: Yes, that's that's great. I think that our priority, at least here in New Mexico for, for all of us, I think is water. And, and ensuring that we have sustainable water supply that is clean, that is um, available to us all, um, for all of our um, human society and, and natural environments, the wildlife um, and other um, things that rely on water and sustain ourselves and to sustain ourselves. Our agricultural community um, certainly is an important um, issue to address in in terms of water conservation. Um, So I think our focus, my focus, I think, because it's understandable, it's relatable, it's ever apparent, is um, addressing water um, challenges. Um, We we hope to do that in many ways. We are already um, doing many things Um, in the Nature Conservancy. We have the Rio Grande Water Fund, which is a collection of very concerned, invested entities um, to address challenges. Um, And I hope to bring our tribal nations to that network to be able to Receive recognition and be able to um, contribute towards solutions. Um, offer solutions that that are that are present on tribal lands. Many active projects, many things are going on that have been going on for centuries to sustain ourselves. Um, we we need to talk and we need to share. Um, and and so I think focusing on the water here in New Mexico is. Is at my my highest highest level of priority.
1: So a very long time ago, before I became a journalist, I worked as an archaeologist and a tribal consultant, mm-hmm. and um, I found myself. This was in the late '90s and early 2000s. Like, I found myself really dismayed by what tribal consultation was. Um, it seemed very much like an afterthought or a box to check, and and it it seems to me like partnerships programs like this one are, are hopefully a part of a larger trend to make sure that that tides are a part of the conversation from the very beginning or that there are partnerships. And I'm curious, like what, what you think, is this a, is this the beginning? Is this a, are things gonna sort of change in these types of conversations?
3: Well, certainly I think, I agree with you in that tribal um, input, tribal communication should not be an afterthought. It should be a first consideration. It should be a task and a responsibility that agencies and others who are in a authoritative um, role should seek. A relationship with the tribes from the very beginning, um, whether it's related to planning or implementation of of any particular thing, we all need to be part of the decision-making process. We share in these decisions that are being made. It affects us all, um, regardless of where we live and who we are. It's a shared responsibility and it's a shared role in which we all have to invest in its its solutions. So therefore, I hope that when we address conservation um, matters within this state, that we are open um, and fair about how we seek solutions, um, how we make decisions, um, where the investment and priorities are made, and and understand the basis of of the decisions that are made. Um, What is the rationale? Um, Hopefully unbiased um, in terms of politics, in terms of um, funding and and who who has um, 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 more power over others. I think we have to be equitable in how we Share in this decision making process. Um, Our voices have to be heard. Um, There certainly are examples where um, land management decisions have adversely affected Native and traditional communities. Um, You know, the preservation of cultural and traditional sites, um, the protection of water rights, and, and many things. Um, I think all have to be under consideration and on the table when we have these discussions and when we make decisions on how we're going to address um, environmental concerns and environmental challenges.
1: So moving forward with this new position, um, what are you most excited about or looking forward to the most for New Mexico?
3: I'm I'm really excited and, and this is my first time um, having my career mostly on the federal side now, I'm like on the other side of the fence and I'm very encouraged and enlightened to see the commitment and the desire to um, address our natural resource challenges here in New Mexico. It is important to many people and I'm seeing the, the support, the desire, the energy uh, focusing in on um, seeking solutions for many challenges. Um, the the challenges are, are many, diversified, depending on where you live in this state um, or in the Southwest. Um, your challenges may be different, but nonetheless I think I see a very committed and desirable public that wants to learn, that wants to I think, seek new solutions um, and be able to invest in that. And so that's what energizes me is to see that commitment and and being able to see um, what broad array of potential answers we can come up with um, of of many types. And, And I think it's time that we are we gather together. It's time that we have some meaningful discussions and conversations about um, making decisions towards our um, conservation challenges. Um, that's how we're going to sustain life um, for years and years to come. And that's what we believe in. Well, that sounds
1: really exciting. I personally feel really um. I totally agree with you, we need to be gathering and talking about solutions and listening to one another, so thank you so much for joining me today and I look forward to hearing what's next.
3: Thank you. Thanks. I look forward to this too. Great. Thank
0: Our line opinion panel last week had some great conversations about the uh, upcoming municipal elections tomorrow. Be sure to get out there and vote and make your voice heard. They also talked about the impacts of that tragic shooting on the Rust film set. You can hear those in our most recent episode of the podcast, but they also had a great conversation about a legislative proposal that would allow retired law enforcement uh um, officers to return to the workforce while collecting their pension. And of course, the idea behind this is to help with the crime wave that we're experiencing across New Mexico. That uh, practice is called double dipping, where you get a salary and your pension at the same time. And it was actually done away with about 10 years ago for public sector employees, in part because of the hit on our uh, pension solvency fund. And so Is this a good idea? We know we need to be dealing with crime, but what would the long-term impacts of that be? We wanted to find out from our line opinion panelists. And a reminder, this week that includes former State Senator Eric Griego, also Tom Garrity of the Garrity Group, and Rebecca Latham of the Girl Scouts of New Mexico. So here is that conversation for you. Take it away, host Gene Grant.
4: Could New Mexico return to a world of double dipping to try and combat the ongoing crime crisis? Retired officer and current state representative Bill Reem hopes so. He says he's working on legislation that would allow retired law enforcement officers to return to the workforce while still collecting pension benefits as well. Hence the term double dipping. All right, Eric, there would be conditions under Mr. Reem's proposal including a 6-month waiting period before officers can return to the workforce and incentives to hold off on collecting that pension while returning to work. We know that crime's a concern statewide, but is this the solution in your mind understanding that? I know you were quite understanding of what happened the last time around when we got rid of double dipping. What's
5: what's the difference here? Bad idea. You know, let me tell you a better idea. Okay. Three things we could do. First of all, the city's already doing. It. APD is offering $10,000 sign-on bonuses for new officers. You want to get some new folks who aren't steeped in the, in the dysfunctional culture of, of, of APD in a lot of departments, you know, give them a reason to join up. So a lot of folks, I think that'll becomes a very, it's like teachers, it becomes a real difference if, if they have a family, right? Mm-hmm. The second thing is um, both Santa Fe and Albuquerque are doing these community safety departments. Albuquerque is, is really getting off the ground to really take some of that, the demand for police time, you know, for man, person hours of police, on these you know these these mental health and addiction and sort of like these these kind of uh, uh, calls that really could be taken by someone someone other than a uniformed officer that's the second thing we should we should double down on for 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 cities and then the 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 third thing which i think is 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 really really important we haven't talked a lot about there's some folks who've had this great idea of starting to, to 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 whether it's a charter school or some kind of training to get get to change the culture and start getting younger kids interested in becoming entering public safety from a much more holistic hmm. perspective right not just the kids who, who always wanted to be a police officer and have a gun but the folks who like who are thinking about do i do a teaching do i do you know the military do i do like give them a reason in a place where they can sort of learn some of these community skills social work but also law enforcement and also ethics and and all these other things that you could learn so you kind of create a pipeline so if you do those three things bonuses sign-on bonuses expand these departments to take some of the workload off the existing officers and then really start to create a pipeline i think that's a much better solution than asking the old timers to c- come back and and hey we'll make it worth your while you can start collecting your pension and then mm-hmm. you're and then you're just bouncing a lot of young people it's really demoralizing for the department and i also don't think it changes the culture of these departments because ah. the problem is and i say this as an old guy yes these old timers you know we're kind of set in our ways yep. you know and if you, if you were if you were if you were uh, socialized in one of those old departments where it was you know perhaps not the, not the most progressive way to do law enforcement. That's what we're going to get more of if we bring some of these old timers back. I appreciate
4: that so much. It was my very first thought. I mean, you know, these old guys coming back in, telling these younger guys how it should be done, all that kind of thing. You know how people are. It's one of those things. Rebecca, is this, uh, just a quick question on this. I got another thing going back to double dipping. Uh, is this a white flag? I mean, like Eric said, there's a lot of things we could do. Why do we, why do we have to take this giant leap to reach back to people who are living another life, basically, at this point?
6: Well, if you would to ask uh, me how I felt about double dipping, probably, you know, a month ago, I would have said we are at the point where like, no, nothing's a bad idea by any means necessary, by all means necessary. Let's get more cops. Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of our police. I was glad to read in the journal that that most of us are and most of us do feel like they're doing a, a good job, mm-hmm. uh, whether we feel safe or not safe and no matter who it is we're voting for. People seem to be generally aligned that uh, that our police officers are doing a good job. The thing is that they're not, we have, uh, I think we're going to, we will come close to 200 officers who leave the force this year from APD. And I do want to reiterate, this is, an, a, this is an Albuquerque issue. New Mexico is not understaffed in policing. No other force is. This is an Albuquerque Excellent issue. Excellent point. But um, you know we have, we're on, on track to lose close to 200 officers this year. So we're, our attrition rate is higher than our graduation rate getting getting folks into the academy. It's not a money issue. They're not retiring because of money. So by offering them more money to come back, they're not coming back. that's not going to change anything. We will all if we pass this legislation, we will all walk away, we'll pat ourselves on the back and say, good job, Albuquerque but it's not going to make a difference. It also bringing them back, they don't come back as beat cops. They retire and they want to come back into what they were doing and get paid more money to do it. It's not that they don't deserve the more money it's that now we're disincentivizing younger officers because you're limiting their career path you're limiting where they can go so i just i i I respect representative ream for trying for throwing something out there but really because this is an albuquerque issue i don't I, i don't think we need to take it to the legislature i think we need to look at what is causing the culture at the city of albuquerque to make them want to retire so soon good points there Hey TOM, THE GOVERNOR WON'T SAY WHETHER OR
4: NOT SHE SUPPORTS THIS IDEA AND SHE HAS CONTROL OVER WHAT ISSUES CAN BE ADDED TO THE CALL, OF COURSE, DURING THIS 30-DAY COMING UP. Uh, DO YOU THINK THIS MEASURE WILL MAKE HER CALL? IT HAS THE
7: POTENTIAL. I MEAN, IT HAS, YOU KNOW, FROM from AN OPTICS PERSPECTIVE, IT HAS A LOT OF CURB APPEAL. Uh, IT'S SOMETHING THAT WILL GET A LOT OF PEOPLE TALKING ABOUT PUBLIC SAFETY uh, AND SPECIFICALLY IN ALBUQUERQUE. Uh, you know where, uh, but anyway. So I, I think that the, it does have a lot of curb appeal. Whether or not it actually makes the calls, a whole other issue. Just playing off of uh, what I've heard both uh, Rebecca and Eric saying, I you know I have a little bit of a different uh, perspective. I'm I'm okay. You know, if people want to return to the force, let's provide a means for them to return to the force. Uh, because you know, granted will they want to return is the whole other issue because you know if they've already retired early from something it's over a philosophical issue not a money issue what has changed philosophically that will get them to say you know what maybe i will return to the albuquerque police department maybe i will return to you know x or y or z um, the other thing is is that i i'd like it because it provides an opportunity for institutional knowledge to come back into the uh, into the police department Uh, You know, with a lot of new recruits, a lot of new officers, uh, you know, which are all very well trained. uh, You know, I think that, you know, there's sometimes, you know, having somebody who has that institutional knowledge come back in and share their insights, I think is a good thing. And, you know, but having a process, I don't think we are hurt as a result of having a process provide a pathway Mm -hmm. to allow some of the officers who want to return to return. Mm.
4: Hey Eric, the police union spokesperson here in Albuquerque has come out against the plan saying retired officers re-enter the workforce at higher levels. Rebecca mentioned this, therefore stunting the career progress of younger officers but supporters, see the idea, without a move like this we'll, you know, we'll have to go out of state even more to find more officers to fill positions in that institutional knowledge about the community that Tom's mentioned won't be, won't be had with people coming in from the outside. Does that make sense to you where the, where the police uh, unions coming from?
5: No, but I I, I generally have a hard time understanding where Sean Willoughby's coming from most of the time. Um, But I have to say that um, I agree with him, which is rare, that um, that we have to provide some opportunities. This is a tough this is a tough job, right, Mm -hmm. especially everything going on. So if we want to get our best and brightest, if we want people to make this a career decision, they got to be able to support their families and they got to feel like um, like they have a career path. Right. I, I think we we might. I might disagree with Sean Willoughby about you know, whether the Department of Justice, uh, the, the, the reforms we're talking about should be implemented and how they should be implemented. He'd like them to go away. Mm-hmm. I think we need to really change the culture of the department. But if we if we use it as an opportunity to bring in a lot of new folks, the different perspective, younger folks, um, there's plenty of young people in uh, Albuquerque and around the state who would love to be in a very uh, sort of enlightened police department where they can really help the community. That's why most right. people go into it. That's the right. people who go into it who just want to shoot folks are the people who create the bad reputation for most of law enforcement, right? Mm-hmm. We want to minimize the incentives for those folks. And we want the folks who are thinking again about the military, about teaching, about about maybe social work, maybe thinking about like, what, what can I do to help my community, to serve my community? AND I'M FROM HERE, I WANT TO DO THAT IN MY COMMUNITY. HOW DO WE MAKE THIS A a REALLY GOOD DECISION FOR THEM? AND I THINK THAT'S WHAT WE SHOULD BE TALKING ABOUT, NOT ABOUT BRINGING BACK SOME OLD TIMERS, NOT ABOUT BRINGING OUT PEOPLE FROM OTHER STATE, uh, FROM OUT OF STATE. I THINK WE we HAVE AN OPPORTUNITY TO REALLY REBUILD THE DEPARTMENT IN A WAY THAT'S GOING TO HELP US KIND OF OVERCOME ALL THE CHALLENGES WE'VE HAD FOR, FRANKLY, A GENERATION. INTERESTING POINTS. HEY, GUYS, THANK YOU ALL FOR YOUR RESEARCH AND THOUGHTFUL COMMENTS.
4: This week, be sure to let us know what you think about any of the topics the line covered this week on our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram pages.
0: That will do it for this episode of New Mexico in Focus. Again, tomorrow is Election Day, so get out there, make your voice heard if you haven't already, and be ready for a full recap of everything that happened in those elections on our next episode. And be sure to tune in to the show Friday night at 7 on New Mexico PBS. Until then, have an outstanding week and stay safe, stay healthy.